it's like chickadees versus nut hatches. And then there's this couple of cardinals that keep coming back and they're so brilliantly beautiful. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Montague Reporter Podcast. I'm here with two amazing guests, Mike and Sarah. Mike, who are you? Amazing. I am the managing editor of the Montague Reporter newspaper. Sarah Robertson, we have the same name. First name, (laughs) at least. Who are you? Uh, I am a contributor to the Montague Reporter. I think I have referred to both of you as Sarah, too, to the other one, so I apologize for that. It's okay. Pissed. That's our lifelong um, <laughs> curse and blessing, having this first name. Especially um, when podcasting together. Yeah, <laughs> it was confusing in our last podcast together. I'm pretty sure our guests like were not sure what was going on. But they rolled with it, so. Yeah, <laughs> Thank shout you, out Ken to Roger. Roger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so let's begin just talking about some of the A1 stories that were published in this week's Montague Reporter, the March 25th edition. Mike, do you want to give us a summary of the special permitting that's going on? Yeah, noticed after this paper was headed to the printer that uh, both of the highest up stories on page A1 involved planning boards deliberating over issuing special permits, which, you know, on on the one hand, I was like, oh man, the paper of uh, administrative society in in Franklin County. Um, But, you know, then I thought about it and and that makes sense because, um, you know, everything comes down to kind of land use in one way or another. And one of them, you know, they're very different stories. Um, Jeff Singleton was covering a hearing to grow some weed in the former Southworth building here in Turner's Falls. And then um, I was, did a little bit of a catch up for our readers on, on this um, ongoing proposal to implement dual use solar on a large scale on some farmland in Northfield. I think if someone reads those articles, they'll get a sense of like how Franklin County is changing and... 20, these are very like 21st century stories, like marijuana cultivation in, in an old paper mill and like trying to figure out where to site solar panels. It's very 21st century. Yeah, our, our industry is becoming more agricultural and our agriculture becoming more industrial in one shot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on top of that, you know, planning boards, these are like, you know, like, like a lot of things in this area, you got basically volunteer boards effectively needing to try to figure out all kinds of things that are beyond most people's expertise. So it's a lot of responsibility on these folks' plates sometimes. What's the company behind the Southworth pot growing facility? It's a little LLC. Everyone involved looks like they you know, are already involved in the industry in one way or another, principals and an attorney who they're working with. You know, when I, when I looked through, everything looked pretty pro forma. Um, maybe people from the eastern part of the state <laughs> this is one of the meanest things I could say about the names um, that I saw on there. But uh, Tom Cusano, who's uh, from New Hampshire, came into town and uh, bought this uh, mill last year. Southworth closed in, in August 2017, and it was the last paper mill in our town. Um, there's still obviously one running in Irving. And uh, closed very abruptly, um, laid a bunch of people off. This is also the last mill that was in production along the Turner's Falls Power Canal. So real 
pivotal moment and is this going to become another big um, albatross uh, around the town's neck the way uh, the adjacent Strathmore complex has been. I think everyone would, would agree with that at this point about Strathmore. So for him to be able to uh, find prospective tenants for there, um, I think, you know, a lot of people in town have their have their fingers crossed about it. Um, I haven't heard yet any opposition really that's reached my ears about this idea. Jeff Singleton was the one who reported on this and wrote that it's potentially the third marijuana business in the last year to express interest in coming to the town of Montague. Yep. Um, There is a proposal to run an office for a delivery business out of Miller's Falls that wouldn't have any butt on site. And then there's also a pretty big I think Flower Power LLC, uh, as opposed to this one, which is Hydro Flower LLC. Yeah. Um, proposing a, a real big deal, a fresh build up in the airport industrial park. And two of the three principals in that are former heads of companies who have built manufacturing facilities in that industrial park. So, you know, that that's, uh, that's a more local team, uh, a more Western mass team putting that one together. And uh, that's going to have to go through a lot of stuff around, you know, all the all the permitting, drainage and, and whatever. Um, we'll see what really comes up with the reuse of, of Southworth, but it might be a simpler, simpler build. Mm-hmm. So I thought Jeff's other article on A1 was really interesting. The top three wish list items that town officials brought to state rep Natalie Play and state senator Joe Comerford in their meeting this week. Funding for schools, funding for bridges, and oh crap, what was the third one? Um, the Farron. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, the Farron, making sure that the Farron Care Center building is secured and a future is explored for it. Yeah, and I think even more specifically, uh, holding the the owner to its stated commitment to assisting mm-hmm. the town and and kind of doing research on on possible reuse of it. This was something that basically our local politicians in in Boston secured in the first place. This commitment, the town is asking them to help see through that it actually happens. And yeah, the other two being bridge aid. Uh, we've run an awful lot of, of photos of. Uh, decaying bridges on uh, on our front page in the last year. And it's going to be really, I think, disruptive to, to a lot of people around here um, when they have the General Pierce Bridge, um, that, that bridge between Montague City and Cheapside in Greenfield. Uh, it's going to be shut down for like, I don't know, a year. When is that going to close? Well, I think later this spring was what I heard last time. I guess it must be coming up soon. I I haven't heard recently like a a firm date on it. Other people might know. I'm just going through life assuming it's already closed. I'm trying to drive over it as much as possible for the thrill of the near-death experience. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to drive over it as much as possible because I'm from the eastern part of the state myself and it really makes me nostalgic for for my childhood to to sit in traffic staring at a red light. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, but it's closing this summer. Until construction ends in summer 2024. Did you just look it it's up, Sarah? Be, I did just look it up. So it is, it's going to be longer than a year? Oh, total. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, there, there's been some talk. The contractor basically has has asked DOT if they can do certain things on, on a kind of expedited schedule. If they can close the sidewalk. And I forget if they, they've gotten a yes or no on this. The idea is uh, they can also close it to pedestrians. They can They can shorten that timeline. So... I don't know. I don't know what the trade-off there is. I also like to walk, so 
But do you like to walk across that scary bridge? Uh, I do. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay. If they don't open the Bailey Bridge back up to pedestrians before they close the General Pierce Bridge, then I think that there would actually be no safe or, or legal way for pedestrians to walk from, from Turner's to Greenfield. I'm looking at um, Hannah's artwork from the wrapping paper issue, which I have hanging on my wall right now. And it's kind of driving home the point how dependent on bridges Turner's Falls really is. <laughs> Absolutely. If, you're, if you remember that image, yep. just completely um, surrounded. She's made a puzzle out of that, by the way, in case anyone oh. is interested. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Where can we find the puzzle? Oh, <laughs> contact the paper and, and I'll hook you up. Mike, did you want to talk about school committee at all or school coverage? Oh, I do. I, I had a, a lot of anxiety, I will say, when I got home Thursday morning after sending the paper to the printer because I, I was worried that I had left the original kind of filler text that I had for the, the A1 headline, which was Flower Town, colon, special permit granted to grow cannabis in paper mill. Um, which was originally Flower Town, colon, special permit granted to grow drugs in cherished mill. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, uh, I did on the school committee notes, uh, which was not on the front of the paper, um, uh, try and get away with no candidates for a school committee, drug use expected to increase. Uh, which is actually about, you know, uh, well, two, I guess, pretty serious or interesting uh, issues. Uh, one of which is that no, no one's stepping forward for the Gilbonne Youth School Committee. Papers, I think, will probably already be due by the time this podcast hits people's earbuds. But that's interesting. I'll probably see a write-in race. And so we'll see what happens with that. And then the other thing is that, you know, there's a, a cannabis impact fee that the town of Montague now has because of 253 Pharmacy, which, you know, is growing, manufacturing, and selling cannabis up, up by the airport industrial park. Part of their uh, host community agreement with the town is to put money into this, this thing, a cannabis impact fee. And then the idea is the town finds ways to spend it, uh, mitigating potential harmful effects of, of, you know, the presence of cannabis in the community, or, you know, even maybe of, of the harder drugs, but that's a real thing for some people. And they were talking with the schools. And so the schools, um, the school superintendent mentioned that you know, the, the, the data is not in and there is, a, a, you know, an annual survey that the Communities That Care Coalition runs about a number of kind of health and, and mental health things uh, for students. But um, data is not in, but uh, anecdotally and what everyone around the schools is expecting is that a lot of especially uh, high schoolers, um, there's increased use of, of drugs uh, in this past year around the, the pandemic. So they're hoping to, you know, maybe spend some of that money on, on counselors or other ways of, of supporting students. One of the most interesting things uh, is um, trying to figure out a way to set up a way for students to, to self-report usage if they're asking to, to get some support around that. Uh, right now, you know, you can get penalized the main, main way is um, not be able to play on a sports team for part of your season. Um, so they're trying to trying to figure out a way to take away the, the, the stick there um, for the kids. And it sounded like there was really broad support for that idea. That's interesting. So is there enough money in this fund to fund long-term counselors or, or some kind of like substantial support for students who are going through drug use? We'll have to see, but I, you know, I think it's not nothing in there. And um, also, this is a fund that once they figure out how to start spending this money, if other businesses start also contributing to it, you know, it might be 
when you talk about social services around here and what the sources of funding are, you know, that this is, this might be a real thing. Sarah, do you want to talk about your article on A1 about evictions? Uh, yeah, sure. Back in March 2020, um, when we realized that the pandemic was going to be a thing and that people were being seriously um, financially impacted by it, we decided to just start covering the housing beat very closely. Um, and so me and Mike have been tracking evictions in Franklin County every week and um, reporting on some of the trends that we've seen. And my last story kind of talked a little bit about how the federal moratorium is set to expire next week um, at the end of March. And there's been some indication that it could be extended. It hasn't been extended yet. And if it's not, then that's going to open up something like a million more people to potential evictions across the country. But in Franklin County, we found out that evictions are already happening. Um, just this last month, it was seven people have had eviction orders filed against them through housing court. And these could be for various reasons. Could be for, for dying yeah. also makes this list. Yes. <laughs> yeah. People could not be around anymore. And that could be the reason why. Um but, but yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the trend we should emphasize, um, we're not just tracking tracking trends and evictions. The, the trend so far has been essentially no one has gotten evicted up until just the last couple of weeks. But that's not entirely true. Um, I don't know how to qualify that, but. Well, maybe you could talk about your article because like you, the, the point of the article is that people might be pressured to leave housing without an eviction actually being completed, yep. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's something that we found out through um, talking to the Central Valley Tenants Union, um, which is a tenants union that formed over the summer, kind of in response to some housing concerns happening all across the valley. And they told us that in their canvassing of Turner's Falls, that they encountered a couple units where people had already packed up and left, leaving their court cases just undecided. So while the number of people evicted just in March in Franklin County was seven, there's likely a lot more people who have been pushed out of their homes, either who have been intimidated by the court process or just felt hopeless. Every eviction case is really sticky and complicated. Yeah, I remember like the last time that Mike and I talked about this, you had written about two evictions that actually like the process of eviction was completely done and one person had already moved out and then another person had died and so in order to get a new tenant in the process had to be closed out yeah and there are definitely procedural things like that happening but there's also people who have fallen through the cracks because they they never filed an affidavit to prove that they had sought other forms of rental assistance had tried to make payments in good faith to their landlords and they need to do all that in order to qualify for the CDC moratorium which expires next week. The idea being that you know up to this point no one should be getting evicted for non-payment if the non-payment uh, is is related to COVID which everything could indirectly be said to be. Uh, so while the the eviction's been happening you know there's been a big expansion of available aid especially through the raft program in mass so the idea is delay the evictions and find a way to get this aid to tenants to give to their landlords and 
what Sarah's really talking about here is that a lot of people um, are self-evicting. Why would someone do that? Well, I mean, it's a real red mark on your record if you do get evicted. You know, it makes it harder to access housing after that. And I, I think a lot of people know that and, you know, might not fully know what their rights are in, in this situation this year. What do you mm-hmm. think, Sarah? I, I think that's true. It could also have anything to do with like the relationship between the tenant and the landlord. Raft assistance is available. It's expanding. And um, there's a lot of organizations like Community Legal Aid and um, housing authorities that can help people apply for it. And um, under some legislation passed a few months ago, as long as you have applied for RAFT you're, and you're awaiting a verdict, your housing court case is stalled for the time being. What is RAFT? Residential assistance for families in transition. It was originally intended to be a kind of like short-term emergency program for people in transition going through a hard time who might need to leave their apartment and pay first, last security for a new place or to just stay in their apartments and avoid eviction in the first place. But the program's really expanded since then to be kind of the main vessel for financial relief during COVID. It's kind of the main place that Massachusetts is stashing funds coming down from the federal side. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the weak link around here with housing has really been, you know, even when these things are provided, there haven't until maybe very recently been organizations working in, in an advocacy way around housing that are doing door-to-door stuff and, and base building and, you know, letting people know what their rights are around what the rules are and what the resources are available. Mm-hmm. During COVID, community legal aid has expanded their services significantly with state funding, maybe federal funding, and they have attorneys available on Zoom calls like every day of the week. So if someone's going through the eviction process without a lawyer, they can be like, wait, I want a lawyer. And then they're bumped into a Zoom room with a free attorney, which wasn't always the case. Like defendants in housing court cases, they don't have access to legal representation usually because they're in financial duress. How are you supposed to hire a lawyer? The landlords can hire lawyers. A story that we're going to be following up on next week involves harassment by a landlord against their tenant who was recently evicted. Yeah, watch this space. (laughs) Yeah. And the paper. Sarah's been on a couple of of major beats, and and this has been one of them. So uh, you're usually writing one a week at this point, right? Yeah, just about. Do you want to pivot to talking about your environmental reporting? Yes, sure. So we really wanted you to come on today to talk about the article you wrote that was published in the March 11th edition of the Montague Reporter about PFAS elevated levels in the water at Swift River School. Can you tell us about what that reporting was? That story kind of came about when I I was actually pestering Mike for a while that I wanted to write about PFAS since October when the state set safe drinking water standards to 20 parts per trillion. Um, It's the first time they've ever regulated PFAS. And PFAS is a class of chemicals. There's like thousands of these. They're man-made. They're used for things like nonstick pans and waterproof clothing and like markers and popcorn bags and like a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I have a lot of it in my house then. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure we all have probably come in contact with it to varying degrees. But I found out um, in my reporting on PFAS in general that 
students at the Swift River School in Wendell and New Salem have probably been exposed to it more than some people. The state found um, through a free public water testing program that they have more than twice the safe limit of PFAS in their well water at this Swift River School, which is on the border of Wendell and New Salem. And it's a very rural school. It has a private well that only serves the school. And the students there are from preschool through grade six. So it's a really young population of students that's being exposed to this. And we don't know how far back this goes. This is testing that, what, it was a test from November was the first one that they did? Yes. Um, so, you know, we don't know how these chemicals got in the groundwater there or how recently. Uh, it was interesting, you know, that this is the first one in Franklin County. I think I would have assumed that it was somewhere more densely settled. We'd see it first. But uh, yeah, way out on the on the Wendell-New-Salem line, which is also, you know, the, the edge of the Quabbin um, water protection zone. Right. I'm, I'm curious, like, does every elementary school ha- test its water supply like Swift River did? Not for PFAS until very recently. Like, there's definitely drinking water quality standards for other things like bacteria and lead. The state in the last couple months has rolled out this free testing program, first targeting public water supplies. And now they've actually opened it up to um, private well testing which is where the entire town of Wendell gets its water, basically. From underground. From underground. And, you know, I think this is going to be an interesting one, especially if some of these residential tests end up uh, higher than suggested levels of of PFAS. How remediation is going to work is a a big question. There's no great way to remove the PFAS from groundwater in a region. So, you know, you're really looking at pretty expensive uh, filtration systems needing to be installed. It's a question right now who is going to pay for remediation at the Swift River School if they determine it's necessary. Yeah, it's interesting because you quoted a, a few people who said that like in in the future they hoped the PFAS level would be lower. I'm not sure how 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 that would happen. This is taken from a single sample, so it's not like it's yet a systematic sample. They're not in violation with the state until um, they're in excess of that level for an average of three. So I think that that was part of what they were saying. Like, I hope this goes down, um, just like subsequent tests. Um, they hope that their their level goes on average under that um, that, that state new state threshold. D- did I say what the average level was yet? No. This testing began in November, and the two tests that they had completed by the time I reported on the issue had found an average of 49.9 parts per trillion in the school water supply. And a reminder, the state safe limit is 20 parts per trillion. And the imminent hazard level indicated by the state is 90 parts per trillion, which if they found that level in the school's water, they would be taking immediate action. And at the federal level, there's no real regulation, but the EPA guideline for what you want to try to stay under is what, 70? Yes. Yeah, so it's the EPA's health advisory is 70, the state of Massachusetts safe drinking water level is 20, and the school found around 50. And this is to some extent, you know, a story about Swift River School, but I think it's also, you know, just the first of what we're going to see over the course of the next several years as more of this testing um, really rolls out. And it's something that our society starts paying more attention to collectively, uh, is that these chemicals 
you know, are around and in our environment and we've probably been, been dealing with them for a while now. Mm -hmm. I I thought it was interesting actually um, in the process of our reporting, um, finding out how the state was addressing what they found out in Wendell. They are targeting certain wells in town that they suspect could have PFAS contamination. Um, One of the parts of town that they're looking at is on Mormon Hollow Road, where the old landfill from the Big Dig projects was located in the 80s. So they are reaching out to um, private well owners, offering them free testing to try to zero in on where the contamination is in town and then hopefully where it came from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, you'll be reporting on, on this issue in the future. Oh, absolutely. Until the day I die. Sarah's a great reporter um, because once she writes something, then she's just stuck on that beat. So she's just accumulating beats uh, for the Montague Reporter. And Mike's favorite thing that I do is that I find out the juiciest part of a story at like 9 p.m. on a Wednesday. So the timing is always... um, Really fun. Yeah. (laughs) It does give us that like exciting newspaper job dopamine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you're craving that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't always get it with a weekly paper. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm definitely going to be following the PFAS issue, and we're going to wait and see if anywhere else in Franklin County finds actionable levels like we did here in Wendell. Is there anything that either of you have to add, or should we move on to non sequiturs and random thoughts? Random thoughts. The one-legged chickadee on my suit feeder came back a minute ago, and I saw him. <gasps> Oh, one-legged chickadee? One-legged, he hangs upside down and kind of like flails about, but still lives. Keeps coming back, so I'm glad he's making it in the world. I used to live in Lake Pleasant, and so I was really curious about the Ice on the Lake contest, and David James had an amazing write-up in this week's newspaper, and I just thought it was very cute and well-written, and congratulations to the winner. I forget their name, but it's a baby. Demons, right? Yeah. Um, I've got it. Robert Eamond. Yes. Oh, well, technically, baby Jane Doe Eamond. Yes, baby Jane Doe, who's going to um, hit the ground running as a manager of a money market portfolio. Congratulations. With a $50 prize in it. Yes, $50. Make it rain. Uh, David runs this article reporting on, on this contest results uh, most years. I think you can you can pick back through our, our springtime editions and, and find uh, different versions of this. It's always really great. It also runs um, fairly concurrently with a contest that the Carnegie Library does here in Turner's Falls about how when the, the pile of snow across the street from them in the Food City parking lot is going to melt. And although I think that that's, um, that's already done and, and for some reason we didn't get in this week. So thanks to, to David James for, for coming through with that sign of spring for us. Mike or Sarah, do you have other random thoughts to add? There's some things, um, once this issue was out, I could stand back and look at it that I thought were really kind of well-rounded about it. There's reporting about uh, Just Roots getting getting a grant that's going to let them bring their CSA from like 400 people to 500 people over the next couple of years. And um, I thought that having that on the front and then on the back, um, this week's Great Falls Apple column, Annie Levine talks about some of the dynamics um, that that group has encountered just trying to give people free food on the street. And 
uh, why she thinks that should be done more. Um, I liked that. I liked that um, uh, A1 had uh, one building that might get a lease on life um, with, you know, uh, some an- another use one mill building. And then um, at the bottom of the page, another one being knocked down. And then B1, our picture is like a tree growing up through the bricks of the, the cutlery building, which was knocked down in the 50s. Oh, yeah. I loved that photo. That's a Nina photo, right? That is. Yeah. Nina Rossi took that. That's one of my favorite zones here in, in Turner's, um, that whole down by the river uh, behind uh, the cutlery and Strathmore area. Where the bricks turn to stones. Yep. That's where when I have you know folks visiting from out of town, uh, you have time, I always go down there. You, know, you can see the bald eagles usually hunting up and down the ridge. And it's just like a really, really cool zone. Thank you for listening to the Montague Reporter Podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps us get more listeners. You can buy the Montague Reporter newspaper at local businesses or subscribe on our website, montaguereporter.org. Thank you to Blue Dot Sessions for this music. Big thanks to Greenfield Community Television for technical support and equipment. And we'll be back with a new episode soon. In the meantime... Call Mike and leave a very nice message at 413-863-8666 to let us know what you think. But stop calling while we're recording the podcast. Yes, please. And you can email podcast at montaguereporter.org if you have ideas about topics or guests or just have other other feedback or uh, compliments for Sarah Brown Hanson.